Welcome to AXA Investment Managers CPD, Bulls, Bears and Investment Podcast Series for Investment Professionals. It should not be relied upon by retail clients. This podcast does not constitute an offer to buy or sell any AXA Investment Managers group of companies, products or service and should not be regarded as a solicitation, invitation or recommendation to enter into any investment transaction or any other form of planning. It is provided to you for information purposes only. Past performance is not an indication of future performance. The value of your investments can go down as well as up and you may not get back the full amount invested. Hello, you are listening to the AXA Investment Manager CPD Bulls, Bears and Investments podcast, a monthly series focusing on different areas of the financial markets today. My name is Hardik Tawakli and today we are exploring the complex and sometimes murky world of inflation. Many economists, industry people and uh, politicians maintain that moderate inflation levels are needed to drive consumption, operating under the wider assumption that the higher levels of spending are crucial for growth. There are some, in fact, who believe that the primary function of inflation is simply to prevent deflation. Others will argue that inflation is less important and even causes a net drag on the economy. Meanwhile, we speak to AXA Investment Manager's Jonathan Baltora about the state of inflation today and the fears driving investor sentiment. Our scenario is that inflation is normalising. We're not saying that we are entering a period of super high inflation. That's not our scenario. We're just saying inflation is normalising and we are seeing risk to the upside when we look at, we look at the balance of risks. Um, basically, politics. Uh, the resistance for, for, uh, against, against globalisation, so free trade is potentially in danger and that could uh, increase the price of goods. Not many people remember the stagflation era of the 1970s, when oil prices tripled and UK workers demanded higher wages in the face of 25% inflation. Inflation was, at the time, on a permanent upward trajectory and rose by an average of 13% a year until the early 1980s. It wasn't long after that, however, that the UK government attempted to take charge of this ever-moving and, at times, economically debilitating metric. In 1992, it decided to set a clear target for inflation of 2%, a figure the Bank of England still aims for today. Thankfully, since the late 1990s, UK inflation has been at a relatively low level. It's now sitting at 2.4%, with the Bank of England still targeting 2%. Yet investors remain confused by inflation. Some remain fearful of inflation. At the moment, that arguably stems predominantly from a weaker pound, years of QE, and ongoing increases in the cost of living in the UK particularly. Others, however, are buoyed by rising wages being seen in the UK and US, and the jobs data which continue to show unemployment reaching all-time lows. In order to understand how inflation is faring within the UK economy today, I'm going to talk through some of the basics with my co-presenter, Nick Lawrence. So Nick, most of us understand that inflation can be defined as the rate of increase in the prices of goods and services. Usually that's expressed as a percentage. At the very basic level, if inflation is 3%, it means that on average, the price of goods and services is 3% higher today than it was a year earlier. Of course, if inflation is limited, it encourages people to spend sooner, which is good for economic growth and what central banks targeting a specific inflationary level want. At the other end of the scale, if consumers or businesses anticipate that prices will fall in the future, they are much more likely to hold off on spending, and that's not good for the economy. Hi, Hardeep. Good to be with you. You're right. We see the result of inflation every month because a team of specialists from the ONS collect around 180,000 
separate prices which cover everything from food and drink to clothes, furniture and train fares. That's what's defined as a, a basket of goods and it's used to calculate the consumer price index. The ONS publishes an updated rate regarding this index every month of where it is and that's ultimately the inflation measure used in the government's inflation target. But there are other measures of inflation, and, and this is an area where it does get really jargon-heavy. Yes, it does. So where do we start? Do you want to list them, Nick? Well, there is so much that can dictate an index, and there are different types of indices. So in the UK, we have our lovely consumer price index, as I just mentioned, and this really re reflects retail prices of goods and services, including housing costs, transportation, and healthcare. It's actually the most widely followed indicator, although the Federal Reserve in the US prefers to emphasise what's called the Personal Consumption Expenditures Price Index, or PCE for short. They prefer that because the PCE covers a, a wide range of expenditures um, over what our CPI does. In the Eurozone, they use the Harmonised Index of Consumer Prices, and again, that has slight differences to the CPI and the PCE as well. And I think it's important to define that when economists and central banks try to discern the rate of inflation, they generally focus on what is called core inflation, core CPI or core PCE. And that is different from the headline or the reported inflation rate. And that's because core inflation excludes food and energy prices, which are obviously subject to sharp, short-term price things. Um, and they could therefore give a misleading picture of long-term inflation trends. Yes, the easiest way to think about it is that Core inflation is a little less volatile because by excluding energy prices, you avoid something like 80% of the volatility of inflation. Turning to why investors fear inflation, there is a lot of movement in this area quite often, and, and that has a huge impact on economies. I mentioned stagflation earlier, back in the 1970s. Um, we've seen more recently economies having had to deal with deflation as well. Yes, so stagflation is an impediment because it's a combination of rising inflation at the same time as stalling or falling growth. So an economy basically gets poorer, which for obvious reasons is not great. Now, it's rare that stagflation occurs for a long period of time. Usually it's a period of transition. So if your economy is doing well, then inflation will accelerate. But if your economy isn't doing so well, then there is a good chance inflation will slow down significantly. There doesn't seem to be a definition of what a good level of inflation is. I mean, an economist's definition of good inflation is quite simply stable pricing. That's, that seems to suggest, in theory, it would be zero. Well, many economists, industry people and uh, politicians maintain that moderate inflation levels are needed to drive consumption, operating under the wider assumption that the higher levels of spending are crucial for growth. The US Fed typically targets a, an annual rate of inflation, believing that a slowly increasing uh, price level keeps businesses profitable and prevents consumers from uh, waiting for lower prices before making purchases. There are some, in fact, who believe that the primary function of inflation is simply to prevent deflation. Others will argue that inflation is less important and even causes a net drag on the economy. Rising prices make savings harder, driving individuals to engage in riskier investment strategies to increase or even maintain their wealth. And others claim that inflation benefits some businesses or individuals at the expense of those poorer than them. Okay, so what about inflation's impact on debtors then? I mean, it technically should make it easier, I guess. Well, yes, for debtors who repay their loans with money, 
that is less valuable than the money they borrowed, inflation is a good thing. It encourages borrowing and lending, which again increases spending on all levels. Perhaps most important to the Federal Reserve is that the US government is the largest debtor in the world and inflation helps soften the blow of its massive debt. So this is what I think some investors can struggle with when it comes to understanding inflation in the UK today. Are we actually saying a little bit of inflation is a good thing? It's a contentious question really because arguably inflation poses a stealth threat to investors because it chips away at real savings and investment returns. That's worrying when all investors want to do is increase their long-term purchasing power. Inflation puts that goal at risk because investment returns must first keep up with the rate of inflation in order to increase real purchasing power. For example, an investment that returns 2% before inflation will actually produce a negative return when adjusted for 3% inflation. Mm, I guess that highlights the need for portfolio protection in inflationary circumstances. Um, Many investors buy fixed income securities because they want a stable income stream in the form of interest or payments. That income is obviously at risk when inflation rises. Yes, and because the rate of interest or coupon on most fixed income securities remains the same until maturity, the purchasing power of interest payments declines as inflation rises. On the other hand, unlike bonds, some assets rise in price as inflation rises. These price rises can sometimes offset the negative impact of inflation. Um, Equities have often been a good investment relative to inflation over the very long term because Companies can raise prices for their products when their costs increase in an inflationary environment. High prices may translate into higher earnings, but over shorter time periods, stocks have often shown a negative correlation to inflation and can be easily hurt by unexpected inflation. We haven't spoken a lot about deflation. Um, So for our listeners, I wanted to summarise it quickly. Deflation is when the overall rate of inflation is negative and prices stagnate. It tends to be pretty rare, and I think for most people in the industry today, when they think of deflation, they think of Japan, which had periods um, of deflation in 95 and again from 99 to 2003. Uh, most recently, they probably just saw Japan going through deflation again uh, around 2009, although there were some periods of 0% inflation back then. N- not exactly deflation, but close enough. It's the consequence of deflation, particularly in a prolonged sense, which is what happened in Japan, as you say. Yes. So if if you're a consumer and you want to buy, say, a computer and you're in a deflationary environment, you know that prices are going down. So you're not going to buy it straight away. You're going to wait for those prices to fall, aren't you? Correct. And ultimately, that's bad for the economy. There are also certain things that create deflationary trends. So what what sort of things are we talking about there? Well, there's the deflationary power of technology exemplified by companies like Apple, which could make it more difficult to manage. Tech-related deflation is actually a a big part of what has kept interest rates so low for so long. Um, It's not only constrained prices, but wages too. So the fact that rates are so low means that central bankers have much less room to navigate through any upcoming crisis. Apple and other tech giants have benefited more than other companies from this environment of low rates, cheap debt and high stock prices over the past 10 years. But their power has also sowed the seeds of what could be the next big swing in the markets. And then there's also the rise of robotics and China. Deflation, in fact, has been one of the greatest fears among central banks and since 2010. And there are quite a few measures that have been put in place to fight deflation. 
From an investor viewpoint, let's look at the UK today. We, we saw somewhat unexpectedly, it must be said, um, inflation fall in May to the lowest level in more than a year. It's at 2.4%. Um, that's going to be welcomed by consumers under pressure from rising prices as a result of the Brexit vote, um, which is, of course, when we saw the drop in the value of the pound push up imported goods. That sort of subsided a little for now, um, but we do still have higher fuel prices that are likely to keep inflation high for the foreseeable future, I think it's fair to say. Is there something to be said about the UK being more susceptible to inflation than other countries? Generally speaking, advanced economies, inflation rates are pretty correlated. Yes, maybe, I think. If your currency depreciates, then you are, as an economy, a lot more susceptible to see more inflation, and the UK is exposed to that currently. Across advanced economies, the UK is probably twice as sensitive to imported inflation through the currency compared to the US or the euro area, for example. And investors should be prepared for rising inflation as a result. Jonathan Baltora from AXA um, Investment Managers uh, says a similar thing, and we're going to be hearing from him in a moment. Um, wanted to just, just finish up here, Nick. With rising inflation... Um, it's probably important to mention that investors looking at bonds should probably be buying at the front end of the yield curve. So look to those with the shortest maturities over two years, perhaps, to reduce risk. If the opposite happens and inflation falls, investors should look to extend maturities and potentially add nominal bonds, nominal gilts, treasuries and potentially bonds to reduce the sensitivity to inflation. Thanks so much, Nick. It's been uh, great speaking with you again. Um, sticking with inflation... Uh, that's our topic for the podcast today. Um, we've got some great insights from Jonathan Baltora, portfolio manager of the AXA WF Inflation Short Duration Bond Fund now. Jonathan reveals how he analyses inflation in terms of portfolio allocation and how he is able to generate positive real yields in the market today by looking towards inflation-linked bonds. Over to Jonathan. Since 2008, uh, we seem to have had a period of low rates and relatively low inflation. What makes you think that that is going to change in any way, shape or form? It was called low, low and slow. Low, low and slow. Mm. I think that the key idea is, is essentially the level of inflation compared to the level of interest rates. And our scenario is that inflation is normalizing. We're not saying that we're entering a period of super high inflation. That's not our scenario. We're just saying inflation is normalizing and we are seeing risk to the upside when we look at, we, we look at the balance of risks. Um, basically, politics. Uh, the resistance for, for, uh, against, against globalization, so free trade is potentially in danger and that could uh, increase the price of goods. Um, in, in, in the US, uh, under the, the, the Donald Trump uh, presidency, there are some other risks. The, the healthcare reform is likely to boost healthcare inflation. Obamacare, so the Affordable Care Act in the US, had pushed US inflation for healthcare from something like 6-7% annually down to something like 1-2% annually in 2013. So if you repeal and replace Obamacare with something else, um, some, some households may lose protection, but that could also boost uh, uh, prices for, for, for healthcare. We believe that there are some other risks right now to the outlook, and they are to the upside, um, essentially coming from, from China. There, there are second-run effects, rising commodity prices, being translated in higher production costs for producers of goods. And, and, and if you look at the producer, pr producer prices in, 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 in China, they, are, they, they were negative a year ago, and now they are very positive. And we believe that this will be translated into higher inflation.
And then there's also probably one, one last topic that is probably overlooked, which is uh, fiscal austerity. Between 2012 and 2015, inflation kept disappointing because countries were doing uh, fiscal austerity. So basically less demand from the state. Sure. And today it's quite the opposite. So there, there, there's been, it looks like there's been a change of, a change of mind and, and no, we acknowledge the fact that we have fiscal multipliers. So when the state spends money, it's good for the economy, it creates more growth. So all countries, for instance, in the year area, are now in positive growth and they are running budget deficits and everybody's closing their eyes. And, and, and this is good for growth and this is in turn good for inflation. So another risk to the upside. So to, to conclude on, on, on the outlook for inflation, we're talking about normalization. So our outlook for this year is for 2.5% inflation in the US, 1.5% in the euro area, and a bit more than 3% in the UK because of the impact of the currency depreciation and the path through. Sure. Mm -hmm. That may well feel like a good thing to the people of the UK and the US. Uh, the rebound of inflation? Yeah. I think so. I mean, deflation is my worst nightmare. Sure. So, uh, yes, a little bit of inflation close to target is probably good. Okay, so um, uh, if people take a view and agree with you on the outlook inflation, um, then they should be perhaps considering inflation-linked bonds. How do you believe those may perform and what should people look at in terms of performance of inflation-linked bonds? The, the, the number one consideration is the investment horizon. Uh, how many years, uh, uh, for how many years are you investing? The longer your investment horizon, the longer the average maturity uh, of your inflationary bond holdings. I think it's, it's the number one priority because inflationary bonds, if they have a long maturity, they're exposed to interest rates. And, and that's the that that's the trick. If you if you invest for the short term, may you buy long term inflation in bonds, then you will be influenced by changes in interest rates, and you may get some good or bad surprises. If you invest for short term investments, I mean shorter term investment horizon, then shorter duration inflation in bonds would make it. I think it's really it's really a, a matter of your investment horizon and for how long will you be in the market. The longer you will be in the market, the longer the, the maturities on the curve are, are probably better suited for you. A question that comes up occasionally when talking to uh, potential investors is, uh, what's the difference between an inflation-linked bond and a floater? Mm -hmm. And a floater, I presume, is a floating rate bond. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so a floater would be a bond indexed to money market rate, okay. so indexed to LIBOR, for instance. Um, and, and people tend to, con to compare the two, uh, the two bond structures because um, they feel like if inflation accelerates, interest rates will need to go up. So they say, well, maybe floaters are going to make it instead of inflationary bonds. That sounds legitimate, but I think personally it's wrong. Because for floaters to compensate for inflation, it means that the central bank needs to tighten monetary policy and hike money market rates when inflation accelerates. It may have been the case in the past, but it's not so much the case again. If you, if you look at the UK, the Bank of England is unlikely to, to react to the current inflation rate. So you will be more than 3%, you will, you will have more than 3% inflation, but LIBOR is, is going to remain I mean, close to the same level. So um, maybe floaters could be good to reduce your, your sensitivity to, um, to duration, to interest rates, because floaters have no duration. But on the other hand, the income from those bonds, unless the central banks very aggressively tighten monetary policy, 
it's not going to compensate for inflation. So this is why in an environment of accelerating inflation, the, it's probably good to reduce the maturity of the bond holdings, reduce the sensitivity to interest rates, but inflation in bond, thanks to the explicit inflation indexation, will probably, in my view, uh, outperform floaters unless the central banks very aggressively tighten its merger policy. Explain to me then what you mean by inflation-linked bonds, because it would seem illogical uh, to be in fixed-rate bonds when there is a period potentially of inflation uh, uh, rather than in inflation-linked bonds. If you're in a period of inflation and the yield you earn in those fixed-rate bonds are higher than inflation, it's not necessarily a bad decision. If the yield in the nominal gilt market or the nominal bond market are below the rate of inflation, then you may need to consider some other uh, solutions. So an inflation-linked bond is, is, is what is also called in some other markets. It, I mean, but it's also called a real return bond, meaning that you are, your cash flows and, and the redemption at maturity, so that's the coupons and the redemption, are fully indexed to inflation. Um, so your annual or semi-annual coupon will be indexed to inflation. And, and the, to me, the key benefit is that it's not only the income that is protected against inflation, it's also the final payment, so the value of your capital that is indexed to inflation and protected against inflation. That's, that's the, the, in, in a simple way, the, um, an inflation in bond. But, uh, so here's a very important question. By what measure of inflation should people judge or view inflation-linked bonds? You should look at the uh, measure of inflation to which they are indexed to. So in the UK, we've been talking about CPI, CPI-H and RPI. They are indexed to RPI. So what investors are looking at is RPI, because this is what to, I mean, the index to which you are indexed to. Um, I think an important thing to mention is that when you buy inflation in bond, if that's the case across the globe in advanced and emerging economies, you are indexed to overall inflation, the inflation rates that includes food and oil prices, which, which in my view is a good thing. So how can people use index-linked bonds as part of a diversified portfolio? It really depends uh, what's your investment horizon and, and who you are as an investor. If you, if you are an insurance company or a pension fund, you want to hedge against inflation and you want to hedge against interest rates or because you have a duration in your, in, your, in your balance sheet and you need to hedge it. So you would go for the longest maturities on the curve that have the benefit of having a long duration and high sensitivity to interest rates, but also being fully indexed to inflation. So that's, that's the benefit for those investors that have a long-term investment or long-term liabilities. If, you're, um, uh, if, you're, if your clients are more retail, if you're an advisor, for instance, you may just want to have your, the value of your cash indexed to inflation. So you may decide to allocate to shorter maturities in the market that are less sensitive to, uh, to interest rates, but on the balance, they are indexed to the same rate of inflation. So the shortest maturities on the curve may be more suitable for retail investors and advisors. If you were an advisor, Jonathan, um, how would you explain the concept of duration to a, a retail client who may not have come across it before? Mm -hmm. So the concept of duration is the sensitivity to interest rates. The longer your bond investment with a fixed rate, the higher sensitive they are to changes 
in interest rates because the stream of coupon is very long. You have many coupons that you need to readjust depending on interest rates going up or down. So the concept of duration is basically based on the average maturity of your bond holdings. You have more uncertainty for longer maturities, so you have a longer duration for, uh, for longer bond holdings with a fixed rate, while it's, it's the opposite for shorter maturities. Shorter maturities have more predictability, maybe, so a lower duration. Talk a little bit about liquidity, where inflation-linked bonds are concerned. So liquidity is an interesting topic because it's a bit of a paradox in the inflation-linked bond market. When you listen to uh, market makers and brokers, they would complain about liquidity. That's probably also to some extent trying to extract from you a bit more premium. But we've been investing a lot in, in you know, big data and in analytics uh, with, our, with our trading desk. And we've been analyzing the, the, the market, looking also at official data. And to take the US inflation bond market, for instance, um, the key change that has happened over the past five years is the ban on proprietary trading. Um, so for some it was bad because they, it was kind of an arbitrage going on in the market, but still, if you look at volumes, and that's official volumes from the New York Federal Reserve, 2016 was the highest on record. So people complain about liquidity on one hand, and, and, but, and on the other hand, volumes traded were the highest on record. Which is, which is interesting. So we did a bit of research, we dig a bit, a, a bit around that, and we found that liquidity and volumes tend to become more concentrated in some bonds that are the benchmark bonds, the most recently issued one. Which is, which is also a reason why we believe that there's more value in active management of inflationary bonds. If you do passive, in our view, you will overexpose your portfolios to the largest bonds, which are the oldest ones and the least liquid ones. While in our actively managed portfolios, what we're doing is that we are overexposing the portfolio to the newest bond, the more recently issued one, um, where most of the activity is taking place. And that's, uh, that's something that we've identified together with our trading desk using those analytics that they have developed. So how often do you trade in your fund? So you can trade for various set of reasons, uh, in and outflows, of course, but also when you want to reposition a portfolio. Uh, there can be weeks when we don't trade because we believe that we have the right position. Our investment philosophy is not to do micro relative value trades, very, very capital intensive. We're more doing uh, asset allocation. I mean, the, 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 the secret of actively managing an inflation bond portfolio is that when you see inflation accelerating, you absolutely want inflation in bonds and you want to reduce the maturity because uh, you want to reduce the exposure to interest rates as rising inflation has historically been associated to rising interest rates. On the other hand, when you see inflation falling, that can happen, and you want to extend the maturities in your, in your portfolio, and you want to potentially have nominal bonds, so nominal gilts, treasuries, or potentially boons as well, just to reduce the sensitivity to inflation. So that's, that's, that's how we view the market. An inflation in bond is a trade-off between inflation and duration. Rising inflation, you need the front end of the curve, the shortest maturities. Falling inflation, you want to extend maturities and potentially add nominal bonds to, to, to the portfolio to prevent a negative impact occurring from falling inflation. So how do you use your view of inflation in managing your portfolios? So take, take for instance, the AXA Wolfen Global Inflation Short Duration Bonds Fund. It's, um, you can see that as a trade-off between inflation and duration because it has such a short maturity focus on the curve uh, with maturities going up to five years. And what you will find is that 
when inflation is accelerating or when we expect inflation to accelerate based on our, on our analysis, we would prefer the front end of the curve because historically the longer maturities tend to be less positively affected by rising inflation. There's a risk that duration and rising interest rates will push their bond yields higher, which will be negative. So rising inflation, we want to buy the front end of the curve. In the opposite scenario, where we see inflation decelerating, or even if we see the market as expensive, what we can do is uh, potentially shifting the assets from inflation in bonds into nominal bonds. I mean, I'm not talking credit or other asset classes. I'm just saying in the sovereign space. So potentially selling UK gills or US uh, tips that are both linked to inflation into nominal bonds. Uh, so gilts, treasuries, or potentially bonds. Just because falling inflation will be potentially negative for, for the income of those bonds. And the other thing that we can do when inflation is accelerating is that we would potentially extend the maturity of our bond holdings simply because the front end of the curve is the most exposed to inflation and falling inflation would not necessarily be very good for those. And falling inflation is also very often associated with uh, falling interest rates. So probably, probably better going longer on the curve. On that note, Jonathan Baltora, thank you very much indeed. Thank you.